Welcome to the Genuine Creative Podcast with Melissa Hurt. Here's where I'll be helping creatives get through mindset blocks, step into wellness and self-care practices, and overcome imposter syndrome so that you can live genuinely as a creative person, putting your greatest gift out into the world. So here we are, our first episode, and I thought that I would start us off by sharing with you a little bit about who I am and what I have to offer and why I hope you'll keep listening in to this podcast. So I am Melissa Hurt. As far as my creative activities go, I have worked and identify as a makeup artist, an actor, a theater director. I've been a theater producer. I am a poet. I play the violin. Would I call myself a violinist? Maybe not there yet, but I do play the violin. I'm in an amateur orchestra right now, so maybe I am a violinist. And um, I'm a teacher. And that's really the main thing that I do to support myself. I'm also a coach. I have a small business called Integrative Studio, where I teach and coach personal development and communication skills. And I'm going to share with you my story and how I got to be all of that. And then why I hope that you find all of that relevant and can connect it with your own story to help you open up and unveil true parts of yourself so that your creative energy can flow. So I was a quiet girl in my girlhood. I wasn't necessarily aloof or standoffish. I was very sweet. I was nice to everybody, but man, I was quiet and in my head. And all I really wanted to do was play with my Care Bears and my Shira dolls and just act out stories with them or read my Encyclopedia Brown books. And I really enjoyed being quiet. And I wasn't necessarily meant to be hyper social or active. But I just thrived when I was in my head. But that translated into me becoming quite shy. And so one day, when I was 12 years old, my parents took my sisters and myself to see a production of a chorus line that was on a regional tour. And it was the first time I had ever seen a professional play. And, you know, I didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, that's cool. Let's go see it. And I can remember sitting up in one of those upper tiers, looking down at these little tiny white specks and gold glitter hats. I was absolutely mesmerized. I literally sat on the edge of my seat for the entire show. And what I remember watching was not just that the show itself is great. I mean, a chorus line is an amazing play. Love the music, love the dancing, love all of it. But what I was moved by were these actors. I was like, how are they doing that? How are they able to stand on stage in front of all these people and be so vulnerable and raw and put themselves out there to tell this story? And something about that literally changed my life forever. And what I realized later on, maybe just a few years later, was that 
those actors were on show number 687, let's say. But they changed the life of a 12-year-old girl that night. And it made me realize the power that artists have is that for many of us, and I will speak about myself too, we're just doing our thing. We're just doing our thing. We're doing what we know to do. But we have no idea whose life we are literally changing because of the work we do and because of the courage we have to do our work. So that's number one that I want to leave with you is as you listen to this, I want you to know that you are truly powerful and I want you to feel the courage to do what you need to do, to be an artist, to be creative, because you're opening up a window for somebody else to look through to maybe get the courage to do something they've been flirting with but haven't really jumped into. So back to my story and how I got to be who I am today. Uh, Not surprisingly, when I went to high school, I started studying drama because I was so transfixed by those actors in a chorus line. My drama class was okay. It was really more of a study hall. I can remember a lot. My teacher just, he literally would play a Broadway soundtrack on the boombox and stay in his office working. And that was drama class. (laughs) It's pretty funny when I think about it now, but clearly I wanted more. I mean, we did do a little bit of scene work, but not a whole lot. So when an opportunity to audition for a magnet school on the other side of town, and I'm from Richmond, Virginia, so the other side of the city, there was a magnet school opening up for theater, and you had to audition to get into it. And I said, man, that sounds amazing. So I auditioned, and I got accepted. And it was amazing because, number one, I got to finally really study theater, Number two, I got to take half of a day of school at my normal high school and then take a little bus across town, and it was two class periods of theater. And then in my final class period, seventh period, I would take the bus back to my home school. So that was awesome, too. (laughs) But my magnet school was structured a lot like a New York City conservatory. This man took it very seriously, and I loved it. It was playwriting. He brought in local designers to teach us set design, lighting design. We did Tai Chi. We learned African dance. We learned contact improvisation. We did, um, gosh, directing and, of course, acting. So we did all of it. And it was when I was in that magnet school that I began to really study acting and playing different characters and understanding dramaturgy, which is the research that goes into putting a play to life. And remember, I was a really quiet girl and really in my head. And something about playing other characters made me feel more like myself than when I was simply being myself in my everyday life. And that sounds weird to even say out loud. And if you are an actor and you resonate with that, please give me a energetic high five and say, I got you because it was how it felt for me when I was playing Laura Wingfield and I got to play the girl who was crippling shy and awkward. I felt more like myself playing Laura Wingfield than I did when I was by myself. 
Some characters are very hard for me to play. I played Sally Bowles in I Am a Camera, which became Cabaret. And she's so extroverted and sexual and flamboyant. And I was like, eh, this is really hard for me. But because I was committed to scene study and acting, I would find different avenues of myself that I could relate with to put that into being Sally Bowles. So it was really helpful and quite frankly, therapeutic. And the thing that was really therapeutic for me was my playwriting classes. Now, I had never really written before, but my playwriting teacher uh, had so much respect for the craft that he put a lot of care into how we wrote, what we wrote, moving us along further on our path. And he is still a friend of mine to this day, 30 years after leaving that program, almost 30 years. In that playwriting class, I had to write a one-person show for my senior project. And that was terrifying because it was just me up there. And it wasn't just me acting, but I had to write it. So it was literally in my own voice and I had to direct it. So like the whole thing was me and I had never been so exposed in my life. But being an angry activist girl, A lot of us quiet ones are pretty angry on the inside and screaming about different causes that we think are unjust. But I said, you know what, if I'm going to have 10 minutes on the stage by myself, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with it. And so I wrote about, I think I started talking about how, um, childhood seemed so easy and how did things get so hard and I just kind of wrote stream of consciousness and I went through this monologue talking about how at that time there was a horrible earthquake in India. Everyone talks about it on the news for a week, but then they stop. Why did we forget about them? Why aren't we still helping them? And just things like that. But I remember when the lights came up, my mom was crying. (laughs) People were like, yay. And then I ended up getting an award for being um, the most, the student who was most in the vision of the type of student the creator of that program would have hoped to have been in the program. And this man, this man had died of AIDS a couple years before my arrival. And so it was a true honor to get that award. And it was also a big old permission slip to keep doing this thing called theater and keep investigating it. So I did. I went to college. I studied theater. I didn't actively declare my major in theater until my junior year because I had master imposter syndrome and thinking, who am I to call myself a theater artist? I can't major in theater. I need to do something else. And I'm sure many of you creatives can probably relate with the fear that comes with full on declaring yourself an artist and taking that as your path in college. But that's what I did. Um, graduated. I was an actor and a director in the Washington, D.C. area. Then I went to get my MFA and then later got my PhD, all in theater. But I'm mentioning the MFA and the PhD because even though you would think that becoming more and more of an expert in theater would have been really um, validating for me, I actually got worse and worse in my imposter syndrome. (laughs) And so an imposter syndrome is something that I work with quite a bit now in my coaching, and I will be talking about it quite a bit 
on this podcast because imposter syndrome is horrible and it, it feels terrible. And I developed imposter syndrome as a professor. I became a public speaking professor as an adjunct professor my first year of my MFA. And I had no idea I even wanted to be a teacher. That opportunity was literally just handed to me. And it turned out that I loved it because it felt a lot like being a theater director. Like I have this body of work. I want to take people through it. I've got to teach them the ropes. Then they have the ropes. They're on their own. And it's just a really wonderful moment for me as an educator. So I taught quite a bit of public speaking classes. After my MFA, I got a job running a program at a community college in Kansas. But honestly, even though I was running a program and I was kind of like the big cheese down there, I didn't know how to be an authentic teacher. What I was doing was copying the style of my teachers because I hadn't found my true pedagogical voice. And so, quite frankly, I was a biatch, to, <laughs> to be really blunt, because my teachers were really hard. My teachers were legit theater artists who are still doing it and killing it in a very competitive market, and they're tough, really tough. And so that's what I modeled. I said, well, I don't know how to be a teacher. I'm just going to be like so-and-so and do what so-and-so did and even like used their syllabus in a lot of ways and changed a few things around and just did what they did and had a really high standard on my students. And I didn't understand then that you have to assess who your students are, what are they coming into the program for, what type of program is it, what are their desired outcomes. I mean, I didn't know any of that. So anyway, so as I'm going through my MFA and then later went on to get my PhD, thinking I'm like hot stuff because I've got, you know, in this PhD program, more and more imposter syndrome would pop into play because I was constantly being compared to the other students in the program. It's kind of the nature of a doctoral program, constantly assessed and usually called out on the things that weren't working in my favor. And it just really got to my head in the worst way. Anxiety became a very big issue for me. I became very reactive to things, just a hothead. And I, I sure didn't feel a lot of joy in my life. And then enter another massive turning point in my life. So the first turning point in my life was seeing a chorus line at age 12. The second turning point in my life was starting the practice of yoga. I only did it because my therapist told me to. And she only told me to do it because she said it was like Pilates. And I did Pilates in Kansas, but I couldn't do Pilates anymore because it reminded me of Kansas. I had a really hard time there, just personally. Nothing against the people. They're lovely. But I was just going through a hard time. She said, yeah, yoga is like Pilates. You should do it. Okay, side note, yoga is nothing like Pilates. I can talk about that on another episode. But anyway, so here I am in yoga. I remember wearing a sports bra and my biker shorts with my hair in a tight ponytail thinking I'm going to bust a sweat. And I roll in there and it's a bunch of people in their, you know, baggy sweats, no bra, just laying on the floor. And I was like, what are we doing here? And I remember very clearly it took me about three classes at least to even close my eyes in Shavasana, that final resting pose. And over time, I stuck with it. 
And I really stuck with it because I was with people who were the opposite of who I was around during my doctoral program. And when I was in yoga, nobody cared about how intelligent I was. Nobody needed me to teach anything. I didn't need to be a scholar about anything. I didn't need to do any of it. I could just be a breathing body in the room and let myself feel. And it was really the first time I had given myself permission to feel really in my entire life, honestly. So I do yoga. And then later, that first year of my doctoral program, I'm thinking I need more training. If I'm going to be an acting professor, I need to learn more about voice and movement because the whole of acting practice up until Stanislavski was really in studies of voice and movement primarily. So I said, well, I need to learn more about this. So I find a summer intensive that was all about the kinesensic work developed by Arthur Lessac. It's got voice, it's got movement, it dovetails into acting, perfect. So I end up going to this intensive for four weeks and the Lessac work is all about feeling sensation of your voice, feeling sensation with your movement. And you're really slowing down the hamster wheel in your mind to pay attention. Now that took me a while. Even though I had been doing yoga, I was still hypercritical. I would call myself an extreme type A, but let's be real, I just had anxiety still. So my mind was always going, 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 and always thinking, how am I going to teach this to my students? And I remember even asking one of the master teachers, so if I'm teaching this skill to my students, how would I do that? And she said, I want you to just be a student right now and just enjoy the work. Don't worry about teaching right now. And I said, what? What? You don't have any expectation of me but to just be here and enjoy the work? Wow. Okay. So that's what I did. And so I ended up doing the LESAC intensive, learning all about embodied voice and speech. And it wasn't until my final coaching session, the last day of the program, where everything clicked together for me and I got it. I got that embodied sense of flow, feeling present, truly present as I expressed myself. I felt like an actor, but I also felt as much like myself as I had ever felt in my entire life. And it was exhilarating because remember I said that when I was in high school, I only felt like myself when I was playing a character, which is still so strange to say. But here I was being myself, but I was expressing or feeling a line from Shakespeare I wasn't trying to play Ophelia. I'm just expressing the line. But I had completely locked into Ophelia's heartbreak, feeling any uh, expression of my own heartbreak, feeling it through my voice, through this expression of consonants and vowels and rhythm. And oh my gosh, it was amazing. And so that was my final coaching session. I said, all right, that's it. I'm coming back next year. That's just all there is to it. And so that's what I did. I came back the next year. I ended up going the next year, maybe it was the year after, for my um, teaching certification. I ended up becoming a certified trainer of the LESAC work and wrote my dissertation on it. 
So that dissertation became a book published by Rutledge um, called Arthur Lessac's Embodied Actor Training. And the Lessac work opened up so much for me. And that's where I'm going to transition right now to let you in a little more on my story and why I am hosting this podcast. So writing that book, it was my dissertation that then became a book. Even though it was an academic book, I had to get so real with myself. I had to face my shadows, face that imposter eye to eye who kept telling me, you suck. Why are you writing this? Put it down. You need to drop out of the program. And I kept challenging it, saying, no, people need to know about this work. I'm going to keep going. And so what I share with you is as you're doing your craft, and if the imposter is saying, stop, say, no, people need to know about this. And please keep going. Please keep going. So I wrote this book. It got published. I had no idea Rutledge was going to actually accept my book proposal. I remember when I was sending out proposals, I said, well, I might as well start with the best and work my way down, thinking, you know, let's start with the worst rejection first and get it over with. And lo and behold, they said, yeah, we love the idea. I was like, what? And so sure enough, it, it, they published it. But the embodied voice and speech work became a daily practice for me. Because every time I felt my voice in my mouth, I was actualizing and coming into my voice, my spiritual voice as a person, and owning into my truth that I have many interests, I have many avenues that I express myself artistically and creatively, and that yes, I am a smarty pants girl, and I you know, have the PhD, and I can do the analytical work, I'm a teacher and all of that, the foundation of all of that and really the magma beneath my surface is art. I am an artist to my core. I truly believe that art has been the heartbeat of our world and the human race since the beginning of time. I believe artists are the red blood cells of our humanity, because we give it life. We need art to understand the complexity of the human condition and human relationships. And we have just got to be doing what we're doing. And dang it, don't I wish we got paid more so <laughs> that we were valued just as equally in the bank as our scientists and mathematicians that live next door to us. That said, thank you artists for what you do. I see you and let, please just know that I know that you are valued and necessary. So the embodied voice and speech work that Arthur Lessac created became my life force. I continued acting when I finished my PhD I continued teaching. Um, I actually went back to my alma mater and became an adjunct professor there teaching voice and speech. I um, became a makeup artist again. I, everything that was creative for me, I ended up doing. But then I took it a step further because once I became a mom, I wanted to share this work with kids. Now, concurrent with me becoming a mom, I had also become a certified yoga teacher. And I thought, well, if I'm pregnant, 
and I need to be teaching yoga, I'm going to teach prenatal yoga. (laughs) And if I have my little baby in my arms and I want to be teaching yoga, I'm teaching moms and babies yoga. If I'm going to have a toddler running around, I'm going to teach mommy toddler yoga. And then I taught preschool yoga, et cetera. Like I've been becoming uh, more and more of an expert in the yoga of whatever my daughter's age is so I can share the practice with her friends. But I've always included the embodied voice and speech work in that practice because it is very mindful and present and it does encompass the whole brain. So with that, and because of this life force, I call this Lessac work, I wrote a yoga picture book called I Am the Jungle. And sure enough, it got published by Sounds True Publishing because I could not hold my voice back anymore. Once you feel your voice, you cannot deny yourself your voice. And so I work to create as much as possible. I am no longer a hothead, thankfully. Lots of meditation practice, yoga practice, embodied voice work, journaling, all these practices that I intend to share with you in some way, shape, or form on this podcast have been tools for a continued and multiple unveiling, right? I've been shedding my skin for many years to get to the core of who I am and offer that genuinely. And so that brings us back full circle to this podcast, the Genuine Creative Podcast. Now, my little tag that I shared was helping you to keep it real. Now, I am here to help you. So I hope that you offer comments and questions, and I will respond to them, I promise. Helping you to keep it real, meaning let's just cut through the nonsense and get to the heart, get to the core essence of what it means to be creative, what we need to be creative, keeping it real with what's getting in the way of being creative. I want to help you keep it genuine, Because I believe that when you are genuine, you are not trapped by imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is terrible and it's rampant in the arts, really. It's, It's everywhere. But I do feel like it's a bit harsher on us artists. So I want to help you to keep it genuine so that you can be truly creative. Open yourself up. Put your work out there. Share your heart. And let's get to the bottom of it together. Other topics I plan to cover is working through anxiety, working through, I'm going to do a whole episode on on imposter syndrome, so many, so many things that I have walked through the fire to overcome. And maybe I'm even still working through it in some way, but I've got lots of tools in my toolkit and I'm here to share them with you. All right. So that is me. That is my story. Uh, the Genuine Creative Podcast. Thank you for giving me your ear and your time and your heart. And I sincerely hope to hear from you. Give me a shout out. Let me know what kind of art you make and how long you've been doing it. I'm always curious about that too. And even if you're just starting, keep going. Keep going. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time. If you like this show, please subscribe and leave a positive review.